I am Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're taking a look at moral philosophy with Dr. Scott Smith, professor of ethics and apologetics at Biola University and the author of In Search of Moral Knowledge, Overcoming the Fact-Value Dichotomy. Dr. Smith, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we have a huge history of thinking and writing on uh, moral philosophy, ethics, etc. So in your book, you start with, you go way back and um, spend some time covering people from Old Testament authors, Greek philosophers, all the way up through um, reformers. And uh, yeah. so could there, you, you see some things in common with those thinkers from of old. So... What um, what would you like to say about them? Well, um, I think that one of the things just was so helpful, you know, to observe about them is that they held several kinds of ideas in common, even though, you know, some of them, um, you know, if you look back at Aristotle and Plato or even some of the Islamic ethicists, you know, they th- those people were not Christians, obviously, but those who are writing, you know, from the Old Testament, New Testament, reformers, even like in the Middle Ages, you know, a lot of the Catholic uh, theologians and philosophers like Aquinas, they had in general this idea that morals really exist. They're the part, they're the kind of thing that is not just um, something, you know, that we happen to think of or believe to be true, but they really, they are, they're real. And they're grounded in God. And so they exist objectively. That, and, and what I mean by that is whether or not anybody believes that they're real, they are real. So, And these are universal kind of qualities, too. So they're like I take a moral principle like uh, racism is wrong or murder is wrong. Each of those would be like one principle, but there could be many instances of it. So that's what this idea of a universal, it's, a, it's one thing, but have many instances. And uh, a virtue like justice, you know, it's goodness. Uh, they would say is, look, these are grounded in who God is, you know, his very character. So it's one thing, it's, you know, one of God's attributes, but it's also shareable with us because he's made us in his image. And so it's, it's one quality and yet can have these many instances. So it's a universal, something that's real. Um, it might be a little misleading to say it's part of the fabric of the universe, <laughs> but, it, but in the sense that it's something that it's not just the way we think about things or um, these are actually real qualities, real virtues and principles, you know, that really exist. So all these people had in mind, you know, this, I, these, I, they carried through basically a common theme that these, uh, they transcend us, they're universal, objective, objectively real, and even that we can know them, you know, also uh, as such, and not just how we interpret them and whatnot. So even before the reformers, some things were starting to shift. We had William of Ockham and the nominalists. Uh, what was happening with them and what even is nominalism? Big question. Um, nominalism, uh, or when we say the word, you know, something is, you know, you're a nominal Christian, uh, let's say, that, that kind of has the idea that you're a Christian in name only. 
uh, you're, you're not really living as a Christian or you really haven't trusted Jesus as your savior. Well, nominalism is just like a, a theory then about the nature of all these things. It's in name only. Um, if we say someone is really just, it's not that they have one of these real qualities, like I described from those other views, a real quality of justice you know, in them, in their souls. It's just a way of talking about them. It's also got the idea that um, if something, you know, a nominalism, uh, part of the idea was to contrast that with uh, you know, the idea of universals like Plato had. And there's a, a term called realism, I kind of hinted at that, that these things really exist as these universal qualities. Well, with nominalism, everything is just particular. They're just each thing is a particular thing a particular way of talking about something or maybe a particular quality. But there's nothing literally in common amongst a bunch of people we may call just. It's not like they all share in the same common quality of justice. That's like you know, a realist or a uni- you know, view of universals. Every one of these be particular. And what do they have in common? Nothing. <laughs> it's just the way we talk about them. So that that had some big, you know, drastic implications. Uh, part of it with Occam, he, uh, you know, he was a, a theologian, you know, and after Aquinas, like the early 1300s or so. And his idea was that in contrast to like, I think the biblical authors who ground uh, moral principles and virtues in God's very nature or his character, Occam elevated God's will to be supreme his sovereignty. And so it was all a matter of what God willed to be the case. Now that, that results in what's called a voluntarism or a theological voluntarism. It's whatever God wills, you know, to be the case is the case, but that's got a lot in common, like with the Islamic, some of the Islamic ethicists um, who, who earlier, uh, you know, picked up on that kind of idea. And it's the view that came to dominate, I think, in Islam too. It's all about the will of Allah, you know, for them. And so it seems like on that kind of view that became dominant for them, if, uh, if Allah wills that it's moral, even obligatory to uh, fly airplanes, you know, into buildings to cause terror against the infidels, then it's moral, you know, to do it. Mm. And so that kind of voluntarism, I think Occam's kind of view leads to that too, which I think is very dangerous and, and frankly, I think unbiblical, you know, too, because God could change his mind. Nothing constrains him, you know, his will then, you know, on that kind of view. So when you're talking about God's will, are you talking about whatever actually happens is God's will by definition? Or are you talking about God's will in terms of what God wants? ladder what god wants okay yeah um it it could you know some people you know be concerned that you know god could simply willed you know for abraham you know to kill isaac and if he actually let him go through with it uh yeah that would have been moral uh you know on this kind of theory you know about the basis for morals and so yeah if there's no other attributes to constrain God's will, but you hold it to be the supreme thing, then it becomes real hard. How do you have any consistency or any sort of basis for morals that apply to all people and across all times? 
you know, in places. Um, okay. Well, we'll come back to more of that later. Okay. God's character and God's will for sure. Okay. So we're moving ahead then to after the reformers. Um, we jump ahead to uh, Thomas Hobbes and David Hume. And uh, what was significant about them? Why were you uh, attracted to writing about them? Well, when I um, started looking at Hobbes, uh, especially Thomas Hobbes, he was late 1500s into the 1600s in England. And though he writes with a lot of Christian kind of vocabulary and may talk about our Lord, you know, in his writings, uh, he wrote a book called Leviathan uh, as a key one of his. But Hobbes made several key shifts. He appeals to things that we might call laws of nature or natural laws. And that has a that had a history going back to Aristotle and the medieval theologians like Aquinas, uh, thinking that these are uh, laws about, you know, uh, moral laws about how things really are objectively that apply to all people and can be known by even non-Christians without picking up scripture, but just by observing, you know, creation. You know, so knowing basic things like, you know, murder's wrong, these are natural laws, you know, they would have thought. Well, Hobbes comes along and he represents a big shift. Um, he, uh, most of these prior uh, writers had this idea that these morals not only exist as these universal immaterial things, but they have a way of connecting them to us and why they should apply to us. And that's because we have, we are a union of body and soul and there's an essence to us, a nature to us such that due to the kind of thing we are, our essence, which be rooted in our souls. And for Christians that will, we'd say, Hey, cause we're image bearers. We're made in God's image. So these morals are appropriate for us due to the kind of thing we are and how God has made things. Well, Hobbes comes along and says, no, that's not what I mean you know, by a law of nature anymore. In fact, he doesn't even accept that kind of view of what's real you know, about humans. We're not a unity of body and soul, and there aren't these immaterial, universal you know, moral principles and virtues. Everything is made up of atoms, he says. He's an atomist. At the lowest level of things are just, you know, things are made up of physical parts. And we are mechanisms, too. We are like machines. In fact, the universe, you know, the scientific revolution came to be seen as, um, you know, a, a grand mechanism. So this kind of view was getting, you know, then brought and applied to humans and would be extend consistently then to morals. And so now... Um, you know, this, this view of what morals are had to, you know, change to accommodate this new view of what's real. So Hobbes says things like, um, what is good is simply what we are attracted to physically. So if Mm -hmm. I, if I have motions towards something, it's like there's a physical attraction toward it. And he calls that good. But on the other hand, if we have motions, physical motions away from something, he calls that bad. Well, that's all that morals are for him. And so you think about that as like, okay, there, there's some problems here. Because if we think like about some core morals, like murder is wrong, you know, rape is wrong, justice is good. My goodness, uh, 
you could have examples, you know, counter examples to his view there where the murderer moves toward, you know, his victim. And according to his theory, that's good, but obviously it's not. (laughs) So Hobbes's idea here about the nature of morals and moral actions can't fit. He can't sustain some of these core morals we know uh, on his kind of view of the nature of what's real for him. But surely he had uh, a counter to that. Certainly somebody would have brought that up and he would have gone, oh, okay, so how would he he responded to that critique? That's a good question because I I really haven't seen it. Uh, I can't Mm. think of it offhand. Um, Perhaps, though, I think Hobbes... He's one of the first philosophers uh, who really helped advance these ideas of this mechanical atomism, it's called. Hmm. Uh, and this was, this was a shift brought along here that really helped propel the scientific revolution. And it was catching on, you know, big. And so I kind of think that these ideas, I don't know, it was kind of like you're being carried along and working with these ideas um, such that I'm not sure it really struck him. You know, I, at least I can't think of it. He, he made another kind of move too. Uh, if, if you really think that we are just made up of atoms, physical stuff, um, and we're just mechanisms, so how these atoms are arranged, well, that kind of stuff you would think, how would you know those things? And well, it's probably with our senses, you know, it's, you know, we could see them, uh, at least in principle, touch them, you know, these sort of things. And so Hobbes started bringing, you know, employing this idea of what's called empiricism. It's, uh, it's like having empirical knowledge, you know, through the senses. But empiricism says all knowledge comes by the five senses. Now, he, he, he reserves a room for reason, too, but he's really going down this road. He's committed to it, you know, that... Here, here's the nature of what's real. So here's how we know those things empirically. Now, when you take those sort of things together, it's like the old kind of views of what morals are and how you know them no longer can fit. Mm. <laughs> because if morals were really these immaterial, universal, transcendent sort of things, um, you're not going to know them by the five senses. <laughs> um, I can't see God's justice, you know, it, you know, itself i can see examples you know worked out maybe but not not it itself so okay go ahead i'm Good. sorry and then how moving on to hume what did he contribute to to the discussion <laughs> he he took empiricism a little more consistently and he basically rejected a lot of uh hobbes's ideas and said Morality, you know, what he, he thought, what, what moves us to action, you know, to actions and how we treat, you know, other people and whatnot. And he said, it's not a matter of how we reason things. And Hobbes is still trying to use reason to try to say, here's what we ought to do and whatnot. Well, Hume basically said, no, it's not reason that moves us to action. It's our feelings. It's our strong sentiments, our emotions. And so reason uh, for him is just a slave to the passions, he says. It's just an instrument to help me figure out what I want, you know, what, I, what my feelings are about, you know, my strong passions are for. 
Well, that, you know, that for him then, when you say murder's wrong, all he's really saying then is something like how, how he feels about murder. <laughs> it's just like, ugh, you know, murder. Or maybe a, a, a mass murderer might say, you know, hooray, you know, murder. All they're doing is emoting. Well, there's no content anymore to morality on this. No, no um, cognitive content, we might say, or thought. You know, there's no thought about why it's right or wrong, anything like that. It's just, just our feelings. And so morality is no longer this kind of thing, according to Hume, that we could have knowledge about. Because knowledge seems to be about the facts of the way things are, you know, in reality. Well, he thought, yeah, the sciences gives us that. Morality, though, is just a matter of opinions, preferences. And so he starts bringing in this idea of this fact-value dichotomy or the split, you know, between them. That morality is just a matter of the feelings over here. There's no rational, you know, basis, you know, behind it. Uh, but science will give us knowledge of the facts. Well, a couple issues, you know, with his views there, you know, that um, if if you if if morality is all about the uh, the feelings, then really you can reduce it down to just what you know, describing what kind of feeling state you're in. You know, I feel this way. Well, but when you say murder is wrong or rape is wrong, or racism is wrong, we mean much more than just simply describing how we feel. We're making a normative claim about how things should or shouldn't be. But when you're talking about your feelings, you're just reporting or describing, you know, how, how you feel. So he's, he's gutted something crucial out of morality there, I think, something essential to it. And if the feelings change, then on Hume's view, it seems like the morality of actions could change too. And so suddenly, if um, you know, you've got a lot of people in this country who are up in arms, you know, over uh, racist actions, and rightly so, you know, as far as racism is wrong. But at the same time, if people's feelings happen to change about that, it could change, and well, racism could be okay. <laughs> and there's no bit deeper basis to go on, you know, for his kind of view. So you introduced a key part of your book, what your book is about. Um, could you be more specific in exactly what the fact-value dichotomy is and what other philosophers have described it as, other terminologies? Well, um, the, the, the terms for it are, are pretty similar. Um, fact-value split, fact-value dichotomy. Um, it's kind of this mindset that um, things that operate as sciences – those are the ones that are thought to give us, you know, knowledge. And, and this stemmed from the scientific revolution, I think. And we've kind of seen some of that, you know, with Hobbes and all already. Because they thought, well, what is real? We are mechanisms made up of atoms. How do we know these things? Uh, it's by uh, the five senses. And that's the way we get knowledge because that's the nature of what's real. And there are no universal qualities, Um you know, or no essences, you know, that uh, like souls, you know, that all humans have in common, that would be a universal, you know, kind of thing as well. Everything's made of matter. <laughs> and so the kind of disciplines that use the empirical approaches 
would be the kind and that study the physical world would be the ones that are thought to give us knowledge. And so it's like the sciences get this great prestige uh, coming out of this period, through this period. And we still have a lot of that today. So that's the fact side. Right. But things like ethics or religion, well, those make claims that are, how are they empirically testable so much? Um, have you ever seen a, a moral virtue? Well, I've seen okay. people act virtuously, but that seems different. That's that's the behavior. What about okay, the virtue so, itself? Okay. That's good, and that's where we get the dichotomy. Yes. And some others would refer this to this also as is ought. Okay, is that um, the same thing? Well, it, it's related to it, yeah. Because the facts side would be the stuff we can know that describes the way the physical world works. That's more the is side. Morality seems to talk about you know the way things ought to be, but how do you get that just from you know studying the physical? At, at least how we should treat one another. Uh, or what we should believe or not believe, you know, maybe. Um, okay. And so that's where Immanuel Kant comes in because he yeah. sees what's going on and he's not too crazy about it. So yeah. what is interesting and essential about his thought? Well, he uh, thought that, yeah, he agreed with Hume, you know, with the empiricist idea that all knowledge comes by the way of the five senses. But he, he also made this key idea. And when I was at uh, my PhD program at the University of Southern California, one of my professors there uh, introduced Kant's uh, ethics to us this way. He said, Kant taught us one of the most important things. We can't know things as they really are in themselves, but only as they appear to us. Hmm. And when you think about that, it's like, wow, okay. Kant then divides up reality into like two realms. You know, we can't know things as they really are apart from how we experience them. So those he'd, he'd call the noumena, things as they really are in themselves, we can't access those things. But the things we do access you know, are the empirically observable stuff. That's the phenomenal world, he calls it. So we have this split in reality of the noumena or the one hand and the phenomena on the other. And what we can know is through uh, some you know, uses of reason, but it's our empirical knowledge. Well, ethics, he thinks, belongs to the realm of the noumena because of the way he thinks ethics you know, have to be absolute and categorical. Uh, you know, that apply to us 100% of the time without exception. He says, well, the phenomenal world's always changing. You know, the empirical world, as we observe it, things keep changing. So, but, but ethics, he thinks, have to command us, you know, absolutely and are, you know, don't change. There are really absolute commands. There's only one area he thinks that those could come from that's unchanging. And he thinks that's the noumena, you know, kind of realm. So he thinks he's got a way to hold on to what's real because we're going to try to legislate what would be what we would want to be the case for everyone. So he's trying to hold on to objective morals and make them universal, but really they're not given by God. <laughs> In fact, he would reject the idea that we could get you know a source of morals you know uh, from God. Instead, we are to legislate them for ourselves and for others, what we would want to be the case, you know, for everyone. Well, 
there's a big problem with his view right off the bat. And it's this idea that you can't know things as they really are in themselves or as they really are apart from how we experience them. Because if I can only know them as they appear to me, um, like right now, I'm, I'm, I see your face you know, on, on the screen here and I'm looking at it. But according to him, I can't see your, your, that picture as it really is. I can only know it as it appears you know, to me. But then the problem just repeats. Now I can't know that appearance really as it is in itself, but only as it appears to me. Right, right. And it appears to me. And whoops, you know, how do I get started to know anything then, you know, on this view? And so he's, he's got a self-defeating you know, point here in the first place. But nonetheless, this idea is really held on and still embraced, you know, with some changes, you know, somewhat, you know, today. Like my prof told me you know, or said to us, um, this was a big assumption, you know, at USC, you know, when I went through religion and social ethics there. So what is his categorical, categorical imperative? Well, it's um, basically uh, his main formulation, you know, for ethics. He thought ethics have to command us. They are, they're, they are commands. That's just the way he th- conceived of morals. Hume thought of them as being feelings. Well, no, to Kant, he thought, no, uh, morals command us. So they're imperatives. And they command us absolutely, 100% of the time, no exceptions. So they are absolute commands or they absolutes, they are, they commit us categorically. So they're categorical imperatives, you know, for him. So no situational ethics there at all. Right. Right. Okay. So along come, uh, comes Jeremy Bentham and, uh, John Stuart Mill, the utilitarians. So, uh, obviously they've had a huge influence over the way we think today. Yeah. How do they fit into this whole picture? Well, uh, they both embraced uh, utilitarianism. Um, I, I stress the ism there because, again, it's a, a, an ideology about the nature of uh, the whole theory of what ethics are or about ethics. And it's all about, you know, what's right or wrong depends upon how the consequences add up. Um, do the good consequences outweigh the bad? Or is it the other way around? And if the good ones outweigh the bad ones, well, then some action there is obligatory. That's the one you should do. But if it adds up the other way around, uh, where the bad results, you know, outweigh or bad outcomes outweigh the good ones, then no, you shouldn't do that. But that's all there is to determining, you know, the morality of, uh, you know, of given actions. Well, Bentham has one view on it. And he talks about it's all about um, it, it, it. It's about the. Um, I'm blanking here. Sorry. <laughs> Isn't it about the act? Um, He's more oriented on the oriented towards the act. Oh, it's all about uh, yeah. For for Bentham, utilitarianism is all about pleasures versus pains. We got to do the action that produces the greatest amount of pleasure versus uh, pains. That's what makes uh, an action right or, or wrong, respectively. Mm, okay. So he, some call him a hedonistic utilitarian. Uh, but John Stuart Mill said, well, things are more complex than just reducing it to you know, that sort of thing. 
And he said, no, it's the greatest good for the greatest number. But again, it's all about the consequences. So there's nothing intrinsically right or wrong, you know, on this sort of view, just in and of itself. Well, that's a pretty hard sell, I think, because, you know, especially like with the history in this country, it it could mean then that let, let's suppose back in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, let's suppose that um, the greatest good for the, the greatest number could have turned out differently than was decided. Let's say that let's say that the vast number of people in the Southern states, you know, would have favored uh, segregation and keeping Jim Crow laws in place and all those sort of things. The greatest good for the greatest number would have been what? To keep those laws in place because of the white you know, majority who, you know, opposed to you know, civil rights for African-Americans. Or you could just as easily have turned out to have been moral, even obligatory to assassinate someone like Martha Luther King Jr. Uh, but that was murder. <laughs> and the other actions are racist. And those are things that seems like those cut against things we deeply know, you know, are wrong. And even if we just focus on murders being wrong or rapes being wrong, it, it could have turned out that all sorts of injustices like, um, there's a book, I forget the name of the author, but it's called The Rape of Nanking. And I think mm, it's the Japanese right. soldiers uh, in China, World right. War II era. And the way the soldiers treated, you know, the, the people they had you know, captured in, in concentration camps. Those kind of actions could have been justified on utilitarianism's basis if they produced the greatest good for the greatest number. Right. Because, I mean, it begs the question, who's utility? Who is making the decision? Who's in charge? That's right. Who's in the majority? That's right. Exactly. And I think utilitarianism doesn't have a good a, a quality for what counts as a good consequence to begin with. It's just what seems like the majority you know, would end up you know, wanting you know, on that. So, to, you know, when you, even when you're going to start counting up and say, well, what are counts as a good consequence. You've packed in the idea of something being good already. You're presupposing something there. Right. So it's and not- then we start measuring people according to their utility. Right. Who who deserves to be fed when there's scared, scarcity, right? Those it, sort of decisions. Exactly. Um, but so many people think that way. I mean the trolley car dilemma, right? Mm-hmm. It's going down the track, it's gonna kill somebody, you gotta decide. And it's like, do I have to decide? Yeah. Right. Um, so utility, I think there's a place for appeals to utility or the outcomes or how f- policies or actions would affect, you know, people um, like all these decisions that were made, you know, uh, by government officials to and uh, health officials to try to protect us, you know, when COVID broke on the scene. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of considerations. What's going to be the greatest good here for the greatest number? Um, it, it, there's room for appeals to utility, but not as the whole basis for ethics, I think. Right, not the foundation. Yeah. So that brings us up to even more modern times, and naturalism is uh, something that you you talk about in your book as a very fundamental to 
today's current <laughs> ethical climate. It sure is. Um, just to apply it very uh, recently here, um, uh, just so the Supreme Court Justice Kagan, I think, is the one who made uh, comments, or Sotomayor, I forget which one. You may want to edit that out. <laughs> but one of the Supreme Court justices yesterday in hearing uh, oral arguments, I think, uh, for the uh, Dobbs case, I think, that's before the court right now, appealed to the idea about um, is, is the fetus conscious? Does it have consciousness? And mm-hmm. if it does not, then it's not a matter, you know, it, that, that it's evidence then that that's not a person. And so what would be the immorality of, you know, putting one to death or abortion? Well, that presupposes the kind of view of humans that naturalism accepts. Because on it, the, the way you kind of get a view of, um, for deciding you know, morality of who counts as being a human then, is whether or not you exhibit certain sort of functional capacities. Um, can I feel pain? Am I, am I behaving in ways that show I have a consciousness, like I have a self-concept or, or things like that? But humans then are just biological organisms that grow and develop in different ways, but there's nothing special about them. They don't have souls. Uh, there's no essence, you know, that makes them the kind of thing they are. They're just biological organisms that at some point become persons when they can, you know, exhibit or develop certain functional capacities. Um, they can be harmed, you know. So if they have a self-concept to be killed, then, you know, harms them, uh, you know, violates their self-concept, I think, with the reasoning would go. So but it's purely materialist. Yes. Um, materialist, maybe with some room for some sort of immaterial things like mental properties that might emerge from the brain at a certain level of complexity. But what's driving everything is matter. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, matter in certain configurations, things like this. So um, some of the options, uh, there have been many options naturalists have suggested, and here are some big ones uh, for ethics. Um, uh, one is called sociobiology, and Michael Ruse is one guy who's uh, uh, tried to advocate that, and he basically says morality is nothing but a biological adaptation through natural selection. That's all it is. Um, there's no you know, realm of immaterial moral principles like people used to think. Uh, it's simply a matter of a, a, a survival mechanism. Um, it objected, it, it's foisted upon us the illusion, Ruth says, that morals are objective when really they aren't. And it's just an adaptation that helps us survive. Um, some might argue that same-sex behavior is permissible, um, nothing wrong with it, because it's maybe, maybe that's just how people are hardwired, uh, genetically determined, you know, that way. Some others, like James Rachels, would argue that what's right or wrong is just a matter of of physical movements, uh, movements or lack of movements of body parts. Um, So what's the the bare difference, he says, between killing or letting someone die? Um, It's just a matter of whether or not you try to, you know, you actively move to inject someone with a lethal dose, you know, to kill them, or you did not move. You know, to do that. And that's the bare difference. 
It's just a physical difference. That's all it is. Okay. Or maybe it's just a matter of what science measures from surveys or studies and says, you know, it's what most people prefer, but it's somehow operationalized. Science can measure these things. Uh, things like that. Those are some, uh, you know, big options. And, and frankly, I think this is the stuff that's really behind uh, these kind of views are really behind the rationale for abortion, as well as um, uh, euthanasia, you know, things like that, you know, these days. So that brings us to ethical relativism. Hmm. Uh, can you define that and expand on that? Yeah, maybe I should just say first, because um, relativism, I think, is very related to naturalism. I think it's kind of an off-growth or offshoot you know, of it. But naturalism has a couple big things. Um, one is, again, like we said before, um, if everything is just physical, then the kind of stuff what's real is basically can be exhausted descriptively. We're going to describe the physical, the biological, the chemical. That's the is side of things, uh, like you said earlier. How do we get the moral ought? What ought or ought not be done then, you know, from that? Because it seems like it's not there. <laughs> it's something maybe we just construct or uh, it's our own thoughts we impose, you know, on literally matter, <laughs> you know, to try to you know, come up with things. That's what another naturalist like Christine Korsgaard says. Uh, you know, she says, yeah, we're physical stuff and we impose our concepts uh, upon matter and that's, you know, we will those things to be universal for everybody, following Kant's kind of idea. But these are all our constructs. That's all they are. Um, if, um, you know, like Ruse says, if, if morality is not really objective, but it's just an illusion, you know, foisted on us, on us by our genes, and we're just the product, it's just the product of uh, a biological adaptation, then we could have evolved such that murder actually could have turned out to be good or right. Racism could have been right, but that, that you really have to bite the bullet. I think, you know, to say those kind of things and really mean it because it just, it goes against what we just intuitively know. And I think naturalists, you know, also people who buy these views intuitively know, they're, they're not against those sort of things. So to really, co you know, take the view consistently, I don't think, I don't think you can be consistent with some of these real core morals. Um, yeah, there, there's some other things we could say with naturalism, but it, naturalism denies that there are any sort of universal uh, qualities whatsoever. Everything is particular physical stuff. Well, relativism comes along and says, yeah, there are no universal morals. <laughs> they, they, you know, their claim is they don't exist. Instead, everything is just um, the products of uh, what a particular individual, or maybe it's a culture, accepts as right or wrong. And it's their acceptance of those things that makes it right or wrong for them. So, um, I guess I first start off by saying, yeah, we do vary, you know, amongst individuals and from culture to culture. Um, but the kicker, and I, I can agree with that to, you know, to certain extents, 
uh, I think there's more in common maybe than, you know, some people have really, you know, uh, granted, you know, in the past. But the, the key issue is that other claim. It's the claim that what makes something moral or right or not is a, someone or a culture is accepting it as right or not. And that's what makes it right. So the idea there is nothing is right or wrong in and of itself or good or bad in itself. Um, it's just a matter of acceptance. But that means that, like, I think it's Ted Bundy, I think, is the one who I think was interviewed maybe by James Dobson. I'm, I'm not sure of that, but I think. Yes, I'm, I think that's right. And he, you know, basically said, yeah, this is the kind of stuff I was taught. Um, you know, that, yeah, it, it's a matter of, you know, what I, you know, hold as being right. So if I hold it's a right for me to murder and then eat people, <laughs> that is right for me, but not for you. And that's an example of this kind of thing, you know, at work. Uh, maybe it's the slogan, true for me, but not for you, as a general kind of, you know, way of putting the relativist, you know, kind of idea, uh, you know, I think. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think that was Jeffrey Dahmer you're talking about. Okay. okay. He was the one that did the eating. Bundy was just a killer. Okay. Just a killer. <laughs> just. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that uh, brings us to postmodernism. And if you could also, you know, talk about postmodernism, but also uh, critical theory, which borrows some from postmodernism, but on the other hand, rejects um, some key components of postmodernism. But of course, everybody's talking about critical theory today. So how does how does that all relate? Ooh, that's a big topic. <laughs> well, maybe maybe just throw I'll throw out a tip for listeners here first. Something I found the hard way. Um, if they're talking with somebody who really seems like they've made the postmodern turn, uh, which basically is the idea that everything is interpretation. It's all up to, you know, I, that's my, that's just your interpretation. This is mine. Or, well, this is how your group interprets it, but you know, we interpret it this way. Sounds relativistic, but if you tell them, well, you're, you're just being a relativist, what they're going to do. And this is what I've had done to me they're going to say, but you really don't get us. <laughs> and, and the idea there is for the postmoderns, they think relativism is a, it's, it's a, you know, they're called postmoderns who are making, you know, going to say this, they're going to look at relativists and say, you're a product of the modern era versus the post. And that to them, that means, well, you've got this idea that you thought, uh, that you could somehow get this universal vantage point and know things as they really are directly. Kant said, though, you can't. <laughs> uh, but you think you can know these things as they really are, and science tells you all these objective facts about things. But no one's neutral, not at all. And no one can transcend their, to use a term I often hear, situatedness, your particular shaping conditions in your society, culture, familial upbringing, all the different things that have shaped you into who you are and how you think, how you live and whatnot. You can't, you can't escape those, the postmodern will say. Relativists, they'll, they'll charge you, you know, back and say, you're assuming you can somehow escape all those things and get a vantage point and say, oh, well, this view is relative to this one. And you think you've got this objective view of things when you cannot do that. 
That's what the postmodern will think. And that's, uh, I've just found it shuts down conversation if we make that kind of claim and say, well, you're just a relativist. Uh, so I think that's something to avoid tactically with somebody who's really embraced this idea. Um, so the, the key thing, there, there are many different qualities the, the postmoderns might bring up about how we you know, transition into this kind of mindset. But, but a big thing is, yeah, there's a real world out there. But it's like we can't take off these shaping glasses, you know, off our face, which have been shaped by all these different factors and historically and whatnot. Um, you might call it a historicist, you know, kind of view. We're all shaped from our particular historical vantage points, and those shape how we understand things. And we can't get this vantage point to know how things really are. Like Kant, but different, you know, similar idea, but it's changed, you know, from his a bit. Um, with that, as far as ethics goes with the postmoderns, what I tend to see is that they tend to, they, they want to change from a focus on just individual, uh, abstracted moral principles, um, and instead root morality in a community and its story, they'll say. So, for example, uh, I, I like picking, you know, uh, looking at uh, a lot of Christian authors or ones who write from a Christian standpoint, at least, like Stanley Hauerwas or Alistair McIntyre. And because I think you know, we can relate to them well, and they, from the standpoint of, okay, they're trying to take more or less a Christian standpoint and say, what, what is it that should really shape and form us as Christians? And, and Hauerwas will say it's the gospel story. It's the story of Jesus. And our stories ought to be shaped and matched his story. Hmm. But we can't do that as isolated individuals. That's a modern idea, I think you'd say. This has to be done in community. And, and he's on to something there. We, we need the one another's. There's, there's, some, there's some good correctives here from against some of the prior you know, philosophies, I think, that have come out. Right. But this is all tied also to some views about language and our stories and Languages and stories are all, well, stories are tied to communities. Communities are tied to stories, or sorry, are tied to languages. And languages are always particular to different, you know, those different communities. So there's no universal kind of um, language out there by which we can somehow translate and be meaningful and, you know, talk to one another it's not like we can translate the gospel story into some other language out losing meaning, you know, on this view. So in order to come and see that some view really has the, the best way of viewing ethics or the true story about reality, um, the gospel story, let's say, you know, sticking with the, the Christian idea, you can't just go up to somebody and share the four spiritual laws with them or a gospel tract. Instead, they have to somehow become immersed into the Christian community and learn the Christian language as though it's like a second, first language. Uh, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like an immersive experience in English, like sec learning to second language. Sure. You become immersed in it and you become you ways to think in it. You learn the story and how to behave according to it. And the idea is that somehow you then you'll have this aha moment where it's like, aha, I see. Th this is the 
this is the best story so far, the most rational, maybe McIntyre might say. I should embrace it because it solves the problems I've seen with others better than the others do. But the point is, though, is that there's no way to somehow extract ourselves from all these particular local stories and local communities and ways of talking and thinking and get a objective viewpoint of how things really are in reality. We can't match it up. So, so the kind of you know, work I'm doing in apologetics and trying to give people evidence for why I think Christianity is really true, uh, they, they kind of look at it and go, that's a modern approach. <laughs> that's a misguided approach. You're assuming you can get this vantage point when no one can. So that's a big factor. And the critical theorists embrace this same, that same basic idea. Uh, everything's interpretation, you know, more or less, you know, too. I think, I think a key factor then is to say, is that really true? And I, I think there are examples we could come up with and show that, no, it's not. Uh, even morally, it seems that there's some things we really know are true, not simply because they're, you know, how a particular story, you know, happens to be told or fits within a particular community, there's some things that simply seem to be this case for all people. And we seem to know them like justice is good. Love is good. and Rape is wrong. and Racism is wrong. Things like that. How can this be? If this is just merely the matter of how we construct things, according to how we talk and see things from our own interpretive vantage point, then that's just our construct, <laughs> our interpretation but, but we might ask, well, what are we interpreting that, you know, to, um, you know, come up with that? It can't be reality itself because they deny that we can ever access it. And, and then that thing that we talked about with Kant, we can't know things as they are, but uh, really are, but only as they appear to us. The same problem, I think, repeats. I can't know things as they really are in this, but only as I interpret it. Well, I have this interpretation. But now I can't know that as it is, except how I interpret it. And I can't know it either as it is, except how I interpret it. And it, and it, and so on, and so on. And there's no way for me to get started, it seems like, and know anything, you know, on this kind of view. I don't want to deny that we are, you know, significantly influenced, you know, by these, you know, shaping factors. Um, I think that's very important. But there are things I think we can know. Um, and I, I've just stuck with moral examples, but I think we can look at, you know, like historical examples like Jesus's resurrection and examine the evidence and come, I think, to the conclusion that, yeah, the best explanation is he really did rise from the dead. And that is not just our interpretation. <laughs> right. You are an ethicist and an apologist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so how does this we looked at? Um, things from way back in all different eras. How does this um, move to your theory, your understanding um, that you're positing in the book? Um, where how, basically, how do you make your claim that these core moral values are in fact um, metaphysically objective and universal? Well, maybe a way to help distinguish it is to you know set it off against one more uh, example, and that was the critical theorists because. They have this idea not only that um, 
things are, we can't know things except from our history, you know, our particular standpoints, but they also had this idea. There are no essences to things. So everything becomes our interpretation there too. So there's no essence to justice. So justice is, if there's no essence to justice, um, what does that mean? Uh, or justice to the nature of, to what murder is or to what a human being is, let's say. Um, Daniel Dennett, you know, he's a, a naturalist. He's one of the um, four horsemen of the new atheists, you know, right, too. Right. But one of the things that he, he admits, I think is very helpful, is that if there were essences, he said there could be deeper facts about the way things really are, or even what someone meant you know, when they said something. So it wouldn't be just a matter of, you know, whatever interpretation goes, there would be really a fact of the matter of what justice really is, or what a human being really is, and not just our interpretations of these things. I think he's exactly right. Because <laughs> if there are essences, there would be a nature to what justice is, such that it is Maybe like Plato said, it, you know, to each according to his or her due. It, it's, it's in alignment with God's character, such that we're treating people appropriately, not immorally or um, withholding from them something that they're due. Um, uh, it, 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 if there's a nature to um, humans, then there could be an, an essence to them that would define what is morally appropriate for them or not. And there's certain things it seems like we know already that are those cases. That's why I keep coming back to murder's wrong, rape's wrong, justice is good, love is good. I mean, the critical theorists are going to be right there and embrace those things, you know, too. Um, so are the naturalists. I mean, I think just general secular people are going to go, yeah, yeah, you're right. But I think the problem with it is that these alternative views, which define these, they claim that these morals are nothing but physical things. Well, I mentioned some problems with preserving these core morals as just physical things. Um, you lose their normativity, you know, for example. They're not just a matter of how the consequences add up, because then they could turn out to have been otherwise. Uh, they're more than just expressing our feelings because then it's like, well, where'd the normativity go, you know, from them. Um, and all the, if they're just human products, then they can change. But some of these things seem really core and they seem to be the kind of thing that simply they're just right because of what kind of thing they are. They're intrinsically right or wrong or, or good or bad. That to me says they have an essence to them. And that fits back with that, all those old views before we saw big shifts like with Hobbes, because that was the dominant kind of view of people from uh, biblical writers that I trace at least through them, through the Middle Ages, pretty much most of the Middle Ages, except I'd say Occam. <laughs> they held to these essences, and, that, and there, so there was power in those views. If they're essences, well, what's the best, you know, or natures to things, what's the best explanation for those? And I think we're right back. I mean, that cuts out evolutionary theory. 
you know, right there as well, you know, for uh, as a moral explanation. And it, it, I think we're back to saying, okay, it's something like Plato's kind of view, where there these universal morals simply exist in a platonic heaven, you know, so to speak, some realm out there. You know, I'm not sure how else to say that. But then the question is, well, why do they have anything to do with me? I mean, why does justice apply to me? And I think the best answer is, is because there's something about the kind of thing I am that makes them, you know, connect to me. And there's more than that. It seems like when we feel, if, if there's been an injustice, like, you know, from past acts or current acts of, of racism or sexism or whatever, those are, you know, we feel shame in the presence of persons, not in the presence of abstract forms. <laughs> so I think the best explanation of what these kind of things are is that they are, they're real, they really exist, and they're grounded in God, because there's the connection, we see. It's the most cogent explanation that's been offered, historically. And it's not just in God's will, because then we could have all sorts of problems, like I talked about with Occam or the Islamic ethicists. And instead, they're founded in God's very character. And so now we're talking, you know, not just about, the, not the Islamic God anymore, but the Judeo-Christian God. And we can go further and then look at other kinds of evidences for, you know, the New Testament and Christianity over you know, Judaism, I think there. But it's actually the best explanation is these are grounded in the Christian God. Um, and he's the basis for them. And also the explanation for why these apply to us due to how he has made us in his image. So if it's grounded in God's character, then... the begs the question, what is God's character? And as a believer, we need to go to Jesus. Jesus is the one who reveals God's character more so than anything written in the Old Testament, and particularly, as Paul would say, Christ crucified. Yes. So how would, how would you ad- address that? Well, I think you're right. Um, uh, the re- you know, God's revelation in Christ is the clearest revelation you know, we have. Uh, like the author of Hebrews says, in these days, you know, God has, you know, um, well, God spoke to us in times past uh, through the law and the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. I mean, he who has seen me has seen the father, you know, Jesus said. Uh, I think you're exactly right on that. Um, and the New Testament writings then, I think the epistles and all help, you know, flesh that out more, you know, keep pointing to Jesus, you know, he is Lord. And so, you know, we have that clearest uh, picture there. I'm not sure I'm quite answering the question you have in mind, though. <laughs> um, did, I, did I? Well, I guess um, what a lot of Christians still do is that Jesus's death on the cross was just the way God just happened to choose oh. to affect atonement. But mm. it's there's kind of a magic to it, but it could have come many different ways. Whereas many others, their atonement theory would say, no, it's, Jesus' death on the cross was the example of the way to live. Mm. And, you know, by faith, we buy into this way of living and dying. And that's what brings life. And that's that's the revelation of God's character that he's willing to die on a cross. Yeah. And in that, I think, you know, holding 
we get to hold together or we should hold together, we see both God's love and his justice, uh, both. Um, different Christian writers or people writing as Christians, maybe I should say, you know, it, it's, well, I've written another book called Authentically Emergent that looks at um, the guys who used to be formerly known as the emergents, like Brian McLaren and others. And right. they've gone so much to, uh, well, in my opinion, excess on the love of God that in many respects, I think they're losing the justice of God. But if you do that, then you can have a God, like they say, who can just uh, take all this pain into himself and simply forgive and forget. He absorbs all that pain. Uh, but there's no, but, but if God is truly good, it seems to me that God, that, that entails then that God not only is love, but he is just also. Because justice mm-hmm. is a good quality. And if we if we hold a one so much that we lose the other, then we've got a very distorted character of God and of the atonement. Right. You know, I and think. we get what we've had for centuries of liberal Christianity, which hmm. has some good points. But so yeah. you also raise an interesting possibility that God will reveal more core moral truths to us. Um so where do you go with that? Well, um, I think that it, uh, I think that uh, God has revealed several things already. You know, through for one, the witness of creation, uh, I call general revelation. I think Paul witnesses to that, for example, in Romans one and two, and Amos the prophet, you know, does as well because of God's pronounced judgments on some of the surrounding nations around Israel and Judah uh, who should have known better, but they didn't have the Mosaic law. So I think, I think there is such a thing as general revelation, you know, for that all people are accountable on that basis. Uh, Yeah. Special revelation, you know, what God's revealed in scripture. I do think though um, there could be specific guidance, you know, God gives, you know, to his people, um, today. And I think that that, you know, I think I, well, personally, I've experienced, I think God's, you know, speaking uh, to me uh, through prophetic words, uh, where he, you know, gives insight and guidance, uh, you know, things like I've, I've experienced that a lot, you know, in my scholarship, giving me insights, you know, into um, the scholarship or things that I need, you know, he wants me to address. Um or maybe insight even into a person whose views I'm trying to look at, you know, more apologetically or philosophically. Uh, and why, what's kind of gone wrong here? Um, but, but, uh, so I think that I, when the things I'm calling core moral truths, those are ones that are just ones I think we all should know. Um, there are more, I think, revealed, uh, Maybe this is, you know, to say more to your question, maybe what you had in mind more. But um, the my argument in the book uh, was basically to try to say, let's milk these core morals. And I kept it to a deliberately short list, uh, pretty what I thought uncontroversial list um, of those four uh, core morals. 
just to you know try to show the best explanation for these is that they are, like I said, universal, transcendent, grounded in God and all that. Are there more such morals, though, that we could know? And that's where I think we need to go into a defense of scripture and other reasons to believe, you know, that, you know, Christianity is true, which is what I tried to do, you know, toward the end of the book, you know, as well. So there, I think I'm trying to set it up without giving a full, I'm not trying to go into a full uh, defense of scripture, you know, there as a source of moral knowledge, but that's what I want to point toward that there are all sorts of reasons we can have for knowing, you know, scripture is, you know, inerrant and God's inspired word to us and a source for moral knowledge. So you certainly got um, critiques um, of your book. Um, How do you um, respond to some of the objections that you received? Actually, uh, I've not received a whole lot. (laughs) Um, uh, let me see if I can think of a few specifics. Uh, we had a panel back at the Evangelical Philosophical Society about maybe a year after it came out. And um, uh, most of those comments were all, you know, very, very supportive and just trying to draw out a few things. One was, I, I forget all the nuance to it, but there was some, uh, Dave Baggett, I think, might have this posted somewhere online. But he did point out, uh, and there's some good comments that I actually misconstrued a couple things on divine command theory uh, early on, you know, in the first chapter. And those comments were very helpful. You know, I think off the top of my head, I don't think I can rehearse, you know, his exact points, but uh, they were good. And I've tried to take them to heart, you know, since then um, and keep them in mind as I'm, I'm trying to develop a, a more, accessible, popular kind of book booklet that could be used for small group discussions that would uh, work through the main ideas of this book. And in there, you know, and elsewhere, I'm trying to, you know, take those kind of comments to mind that he raised. Um, Stanley Hauerwas, uh, I got to hear him. Um, he came to Biola uh, one time. Uh, this is a, just a few years ago now, uh, spoke. And we got to hear him at my school, Talbot, and then it. And so I asked, I told him, you know, what I had done. And I asked him, hey, if I gave you a copy of the book, would you mind looking at those few chapters uh, and just, you know, give me your feedback? And he did. Uh, a very gracious letter. Uh, it was very kind. Um, he said that uh, I think we agree on much more than we disagree <laughs> about. He did say, you know, that he thought um, the main thing I remember him saying is that uh, he, he probably thought that, uh he never would be convinced uh, that we could ever have this direct access, you know, to no reality directly. By the way, mm-hmm. when I'm saying that, I'm not trying to say that we know reality exhaustively or can't be mistaken. I think only God sure. would know that way. Uh, I, I want to accept, you know, those kind of feedback from James K.A. Smith. You know, I think uh, he did that on some other piece I wrote earlier, and that was a very helpful feedback. Uh, in fact, the idea that everything's interpretation um, as the main idea of the postmodern turn, I owe that to some feedback he gave me uh, to an essay I did, and he responded to it in uh, a book called Christianity and the Postmodern Turn. So that was that was extremely helpful, uh, and I've tried to incorporate it in this book. Try to think um, the main other ones. Those are the those are the main ones I think that have come to mind. Um, 
Yeah. Of course, this book, we've talked a little bit about the critical theorists, but uh, that wasn't really on my radar screen uh, when I wrote that book. Um, I did not know of the ideas by that name at that time. (laughs) And so lately I've been getting immersed into that. All right. And finally, what does all this have to say? How is it relevant for the life and mission of the church today? It's a great question. Yeah, where's the rubber meet the road in all this? Well, maybe some of these things, yeah, are, you know, we've talked about getting into some pretty technical things, uh, could be philosophically. Some people might be talking about like, oh, you talked about this nominalism and uh, universals and all these things. And they're kind of like, wow, you know, what are all these things? And yeah, I realize it could take time to, you know, wrestle with those and, I have people, you know, who come into my classes uh, in ethics in the apologetics program. Some have good backgrounds with some of these concepts. Others have none. Uh, they may have good Bible background, but nothing, you know, as far as some of these philosophical ideas and how do they fit. But one thing I'd say is I want to encourage them. Hang in there. I keep, you know, telling them that. Let's wrestle with these ideas, you know, so... Don't be discouraged, first of all. But but the bigger one I have in mind generally, more practically for people, it is this. I think that if you, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, you know, with different, you know, particular churches, uh, individuals too. But in my opinion, I think this idea about the fact-value split, again, this idea Science has got the corner of the market on knowledge. It gives us the facts of reality. But things like religion or ethics, those are personal preferences, things we've constructed, our opinions, but not something we can know to be true. Now, if that's the case, there's a tremendous consequence for for Christians in their discipleship because it basically is going to undermine it, I think. Hmm. Christianity, yeah, you might hold to, yeah, the Bible's true, but that's that's my opinion. And how, you know, as far as someone pushes you on that, what what is there more you can say to someone than simply it's your opinion? And I think there is. But but so much of culture is speaking, they're reinforcing this whole fact value split. And I like to say that it's just you're just gonna it's you're gonna catch that idea in the in Western culture. <laughs> It, it's, it is taught, yes, explicitly, but it's also just caught, and none of us are immune. And so I think that lots of people in our churches are deeply affected by it, deep down. I think our youth, at least from so many studies, you know, you, you know, hear from Barna or others, so many people lacking a good Christian worldview, they are prone you know, to be so shaped and influenced by this basic core idea in our culture of this split. So religion's just my preference. Well, that's true for me, but how, who am I to, you know, say that is for someone else? And that just, that takes away our courage to stand for Jesus, I think. It undermines our confidence that he really is the way, the truth, the life. It undermines my, my, willingness maybe to yield my life completely to him and live for him as as the one who has 
in, in, in him, you know, present are all uh, the truths of what uh, I'm sorry. Um, in him are uh, found all the truths of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, I, I feel like I'm not quoting Colossians 2, 3 quite right there. I'm sorry. Um, are hidden all the you know, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If that's the case, and the Bible really is God's word, my goodness, you know, um, it, it, it is basically, to the extent we buy into this, this cultural idea, it, it just erodes our discipleship, I think. Well, wouldn't you say, I mean, we've experienced a big turn in so many sectors of the church over decades now towards the spirit and away from the word, Ooh. so to speak. I mean, mm. but of course, it's it's not truly of the spirit. Yeah, it's, if, if that's, it's not that's, of the word, but that's, that's the way people experience it. That's where youth mm. pastors want the youth to experience God's love and be able to worship in the spirit, know they're loved because I mean, they're focused on their, their psychological anxieties and mm. all that. And they're just afraid to push them away by insisting on the truth of the word. And it's like, mm. this is something you need to study every day. It's like, oh, that's just. You know, I, I think that's well said. Um, uh, and it's not really, you know, of the spirit per se, you know, there. I think, like you said, too. Uh, quick story on that. I've got a, uh, a teacher right now in our program who's in a class, my ethics class right now. And uh, she teaches, I think it's junior level um, theology, doctrine class uh, for a Christian school back east. Hmm. And what are she finding? You know, these kids are bringing in, you know, there all these other, you know, sorts of worldly ideas that we've been talking about. And they've embraced those. And they, they, they talk about, you know, well, let's, you know, the Bible says this, but deep down, there's a real split, you know, in their minds as far as what they really believe deep down. So it's a superficial kind of Christianity, whereas the Mm -hmm. kind I'm trying to talk about is the kind that really changes your life, that I know this is true. And so I'm willing to go the whole, the distance on this thing, because it really is true. And I got all sorts of reasons to stand for it. Right. Yeah, we can speak the truth in love, but um, if we pull punches because we're afraid to hurt people, it, it's dangerous. But on the other hand, there are plenty of examples of churches that are way too strong on the word, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. and did great damage to people by beating them with the Bible, so to speak. Exactly. So, And that's damaging. Like burning people at the stake, for example. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Did we really do that? Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it reminds me, I think it's John one fourteen. you know, about in Jesus, you know, he embodied grace and truth, both. And we've got to hold those both together, you know, I think. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Okay, well, good words, good words. Well, um, uh, Dr. Smith, it's been so good to have you on the show. Um, it's been a, a treat. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. So until next time. Thank you very much.